If you happen to have a Bible with you this morning, how about if you open it to Hebrews chapter 8. If you don't have one, you'll find them in the pew racks in front of you. You can follow along on the screen as well if you choose to do it that way. And uh, you might want to pull your notes out that are inside your bulletin this morning. It might help you follow along that way. We'll do a little word association with you. And uh, I want to start by using a word that is probably fairly familiar to people if they're in a legal profession, but not necessarily so much for people um, in the casual workaday world uh, to think of the term covenant and what it means. So let's do this. I'm going to say the word covenant, and you call back one word that you believe associates with the word covenant. Agreement, that's right. Commitment. What was the other one? Promise, yep. Oath. How about binding? Contract. There's a legal word. Okay, so when we think of covenant and God making a covenant with us, we're going to keep those thoughts in mind, all those words associated with the concept of covenant. Because God did make a covenant with us, and God cannot lie, correct? We've learned that over the last couple of months. We're working through the book of Hebrews, and we're seeing God cannot lie, and God made a covenant. Therefore, God is obligated to fulfill His covenant. I really want to understand what that covenant is that He's made with me. What is that contract? Well, I love getting to the point and clarity, and you're going to see in, in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1, immediately the author gets to the point. Before we do that, I'm going to ask you to pray with me. Let's, let's do that together. Father, we come before you asking that your Holy Spirit would indeed be our teacher and our guide, and as a result of having been here this morning, we will know you better and therefore know how to apply your word to our life. Speak to us individually, Father, regardless of what's going on, what needs we have in our life this morning. Meet us right at the point of our need through the spoken word. Use your Holy Spirit to teach us, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 1 says this, Now the point in what we are saying is this, We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy place, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. So his argument is we have this kind of high priest. We've been learning about this over the last number of weeks. What does it mean when Jesus, we're told, is our high priest? Well, he gets right to the point in in this big Greek word you see on the screen. He's literally, literally saying Jesus is the key point. He's the principal point of all this. That's why Jesus himself said, John 5, 39, these scriptures are all about me. Everything points to me. It's all about me. Now there's two indications coming out of verse 1 and verse 2 that it is all about Jesus and that He has the supreme position of authority. The the first one you see up on the screen is that He has the seat at God's right hand. And the second one is He has a heavenly sanctuary. We're going to bear down into number one, but not so much into number two. We'll touch on that in just a minute. But number one, let's understand this concept of Him being seated at the right hand of the throne. Now, previous in our studies in Hebrews, we're learning that the Levitical priest, the the Old Testament priest, those who went to the temple in Jerusalem under the Mosaic law, their responsibility was so monumental, they never got a chance to rest. 
They never sat down. They were always working. The Bible says this in Hebrews 10.11, every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices. Why? Because the priest's job was never done. Because the offering that they brought never endured. The sacrifices were not complete. And so they had to repeat them over and over and over and over and over and over. And it gets monotonous, doesn't it? Well, I just said that in 15 seconds. They got to do it all day long. Day after day, year after year, millennia. Can you imagine? And we're told here that they never got to rest as a result. So no chairs were present for the priests to sit down. If you look at the Holy of Holies, you look at the, the outer holy room, you look at the temple itself and examine it in the Bible, there's no chairs. God told them what to put in the temple, and He left chairs out of the picture. Why? Because they were not qualified to sit down. Now, if you've read the Bible before and you looked at the Old Testament, you see this thing called the mercy seat. Well, that sounds like there's a chair. It sounds like there's a seat. Let me help you with the image of what the mercy seat is, just kind of as an aside. Let me put this image on the screen for you of where the concept of the mercy seat comes from. What you're looking at is the Ark of the Covenant. And God said that between the angels' wings, between the cherubim's wings, where they're stretched over the holy Ark of the Covenant, that space in between the wings is known as the mercy seat, the place where God would meet with the high priest. Matter of fact, that comes right out of Exodus 25-22. It says, There I will meet with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are upon the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you. So that place between the two cherubim. That's the seat, the only seat in the temple. There was no priest in his right mind who would jump up on the ark and sit on it as a seat, right? You understand that. So there's no place for them to rest. However, we're told when Jesus offered His sacrifice, He sat down. Now let's reach all the way back to February. We started the study of the book of Hebrews in the month of February, 15 weeks ago. And we learned that Jesus did something specific in chapter 1. It says this, Hebrews 1.3, When He made purification of sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. Why? Because He's qualified to sit. Because His work is finished. So we see Jesus on the cross, and you can fill in the word for me and I'll start the sentence. When Jesus cries out His last words, it is finished. What's finished? He completed the sacrifice. So it's His last words on the cross. And what all of the old covenant priests combined all of those trying to accomplish this through the works over millennia of years could not do Jesus in one stunning, spectacular, monumental action accomplishes on the cross. Therefore, He takes His seat at the right hand of God because He accomplished all that needs to be done. And there's nothing else that can be added to it. People try to add to it all the time. Even in 2014, people try to add to their salvation thinking that they can impress God through their works and try and earn God's favor through their works. Well, God does expect us to obey Him. And God does expect us to do good works to each other. But not so that you earn your salvation. You can't add anything to improve upon the work of Jesus Christ. 
what could you possibly do to improve salvation through Jesus? So that's why he sits. Now, understand the contrast. To stand at the right hand of a monarch, that's really high honor. Just to be invited into the throne room where a monarch is on his throne, that represents authority. That, that represents exaltation, power. Just think of Pharaoh on his throne in Egypt, inviting people into the king's chamber. Occasionally, he would invite one honored guest to stand at his right side, someone whom he wanted to exalt. But to sit at the right hand of the monarch is the supreme authority. Jesus, your great high priest, sits at the right hand of the throne of all thrones. Now there's more imagery going on than just this. For the Hebrews who have received this letter, who live in the first century, they're aware that the high priest on earth is a representation of God on earth. That they're supposed to carry out the functions that God gave them to carry out. But when the high priest met in formal council, there was always an image that took place. Part of the imagery is this. The, the, the high priest is part of what's known as the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is the supreme court of the day. So when the supreme court convened a council and they met as a group, on the left-hand side of the high priest, this, the judge, would be a scribe. And on the right-hand side would be a scribe. The scribe on the left-hand side had a responsibility for writing down condemnations. The scribe on the right-hand side had the responsibility of writing down acquittals. So part of the imagery that's going on for these people living in the first century is thinking of Jesus as their great high priest sitting at the right hand of God writing acquittals, if you will. So we're also told in verse 2 that He's the minister in this holy place in the true tent. I'm going to get into that more into chapter 10, not so much this morning, but we're told that there's a sanctuary in heaven, a temple in heaven. And we're told it's the true temple, superior to what's here on earth. Not a temple made of cedar, or made of marble, or even made of gold. God uses gold to pave the streets there. There's something remarkable about this temple that we'll discover in chapter 10. But Jesus is in the true tabernacle, Seated, seated next to the throne of God on high. Let's move forward into verse 3. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, the question comes out of that, kind of begs the question, if Jesus finished His work, and if He's seated at the right hand of God on high, what's He doing What's He do right now in this moment, right here, 11.52 in the morning? What is Jesus doing? Well, we know that His atoning work has already been finished, right? We said, it is finished. He's, he's accomplished the atoning work that a priest would do. But His priestly work is not finished. It's something that's ongoing. Verse 3 says, it is necessary for this priest to have something to offer. So he's a functioning, ministering priest. Now just step back with me mentally to when we are in Hebrews chapter 5. In Hebrews chapter 5, we, we learn, just to refresh you, that there's a distinguishing character between gifts, offering gifts, and sacrifices. We're told here in verse 3 that every priest has to offer gifts and sacrifices. Now the gifts that this is referring to are thinking of like grain offerings. A farmer's really blessed. He brings a tenth of his grain to the temple. The priest presents it before God at the altar. 
that's an offering of a gift sacrifice or a gift offering. Sometimes it was fruit. But sacrifices were blood offerings. And blood offerings were always for the removal or the remediation of sin. So we've just been told in verse 3, it's necessary for a priest, every priest, to offer gifts and sacrifices. So a priest offered both. Jesus offered the blood sacrifice, didn't He? He offered the ultimate, one-time blood sacrifice. So that part's been done. But the need to present commitment and thanksgiving offerings, that's still going on. That's not over. Now just hold that thought for a moment. When you come to God the Father with a prayer request, when you come before your great high priest, Jesus, who represents you before God the Father, when we come in worship like we just did this morning, none of us can come before God apart from Jesus. We come to God apart from Jesus, God doesn't hear it. We come to God through Jesus, and God honors it and respects and hears it. So none of us praise, none of us worship, none of us even obey apart from Jesus. These are the offerings of sacrifice and thanksgiving, which Jesus continues to minister for us before the Father. So let's just take this in real basic steps. You and I come to God the Father through Jesus. Would you agree with that? Okay. Jesus said, you can't come to the Father except through me. We cannot, at the next step, even seek forgiveness apart from Jesus because it was Jesus who sacrificed Himself. So we come to Him for forgiveness. Meaning that anything of any value whatsoever is done through Jesus. So that should match with Scripture. Well, it does. Look with me on the screen. Colossians 3.17 Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks through Him to God the Father. See, even giving thanks has to go through Jesus. So coming before Him, everything comes through our high priest. So let me state the real obvious here before we move on. Jesus, at the right hand of God, the majesty on high, continues on our behalf, and He brings before the Father the worship that we just participated in, the praise, the dedication, Want to get real graphic? The money. Jesus sees what we give. Our acts of work, our acts of service, our thanks, even our request come to God the Father through Jesus because He does this on behalf of His people before the Father. With those thoughts in mind, move forward with me to verse 4. Now, if He were on earth, He would not be a priest at all since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. And he says if the temple was still standing, Jesus wouldn't be a priest at all. Why does he say that? Well, I want you to ponder something. Because of the terms of the Old Covenant, Jesus here on planet Earth wouldn't do something specific. Now, he would go into the temple... And he would cast out money changers. He would go to the temple and he would teach people about God. Jesus raised the dead. He preached in synagogues. He forgave sins. But he never took one single step towards the Holy of Holies. He wouldn't do it. God's Son 
wouldn't step into the Holy of Holies. Even though that's where the mercy seat is. Where God says, that's where I will meet with you. Why? Because He's not a priest on earth. That's why He says in this passage, if Jesus was on earth, He wouldn't be a priest at all. So He wouldn't get any closer to the Holy of Holies than any other Jew of His day because He wasn't the high priest then. So Jesus would not conduct offerings in the old earthly temple, but He does today in the new one built by God for God. We'll get into that more in chapter 10. That's why he says in in verse 5, what we have today and what they had in the the first century is just a shadow, just a shadow of the earthly things. His argument is, why be satisfied with a shadow when you can have the real thing? Go forward with me to verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. Now, after teaching last week about where God is at on this issue of anger with us and that Jesus and God the Father are on the same page regarding your salvation, there isn't a sense that God has anger towards believers in the way that we think of it. We need to be very careful about how we use this word mediator. Look with me on the screen at an English definition, an American term, mediator, and look at the definition that's associated with it. We think of a mediator as someone who brings two people groups together. We, we would agree on that. But generally, when we think of a mediator, we're thinking of people who are in conflict, who are in dispute with each other. So when we look at this and we say, wow, Jesus is my mediator, does that mean God's angry with me? Is he settling some kind of a dispute? Rather than focusing on the misinterpretation of the word mediator, let's focus on the reason the word mediator was used. That he is a mediator of what? A better promise. A better covenant. So he's representing us on behalf of us on the grounds of this better promise. All the covenants that we know are based on promises. Two parties come together. They covenant together to commit to each other something. Sometimes one party has more of a commitment than the other one. But there's always this condition of a promise. As far as God's covenants are concerned, it's always His promises that are significant. Here's the reason why. We break our promises. Man breaks his promises. Look back at the Old Testament. Israel's commitment to God is that they would honor their covenant. They never honored their covenant. They broke their promises all the time. We live among a people group. We break promises God does not break His promise. Therefore, the covenant that He makes is better. That's why the writer of Hebrews is saying Jesus mediates a better covenant, a better promise, because the power, the commitment is from God's side. Go forward real quickly to verse 7. He says, For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second one. Now these faults, These limitations, the problems with the Old Covenant are pointed out in a quote from Jeremiah 31. So what you're about to see is the author of Hebrews is going to reach all the way back into the Old Testament, all the way back to the book of Jeremiah, to Jeremiah 31, and he's going to quote God Himself. Look with me at verse 8 now. For He finds fault, meaning God, with them when He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. 
not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. Now this new covenant, this covenant that belongs to you, is based on something very, very unique. And you see it in chapter eight, in verse 8. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when who, church, will establish a new covenant? God. God initiated the contract. It was God's initiation of commitment to us to say, I'm going to be the one who will do this. We wouldn't do this on our own. God says, I'm initiating a contract with you, a covenant. So God affects a new covenant in verse 9 that says, not like the old one that I established with their fathers. When did he actually establish this new covenant? Well, we should go to God's Word to find that very point in time to see when this covenant was enacted. Look with me on the screen at the Last Supper. Luke 22, verse 20. He took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus at the Last Supper said, The pouring out of my blood, a blood covenant, is the new covenant in my blood, which guarantees that God, who cannot lie, is going to carry something out. So this new covenant is not just an enhanced version. It's not something slightly different. It's radically different than the old covenant. It's like the old one in that it's made by God and and that it has a requirement, but the provisions are completely different. Now, let me throw something at you perhaps you've never considered before. God, search the entire Bible, did not make a covenant with the Gentiles. If you're wondering who the Gentiles are, what race of people they are, say, they they is me. I'm a Gentile, okay? If you're not Jewish, you're Gentile. So if you happen to be of Jewish descent, that, that doesn't include you. But if you're a Gentile, it's because you're not of Jewish descent. You look over the entire Bible, you scour the Bible, you won't find where God made a covenant, an agreement with Gentiles. Even Jesus said, John 4.22, salvation is from the Jews, meaning this contract, this covenant, is through the Jews. But what is abundantly clear in the New Testament is that the Gentiles, us, we share in the benefits on an equal basis with the Jews. How is that possible? Here's how. When we as Gentiles are saved we become automatically the descendants, the heirs of Abraham, spiritual descendants. So Galatians 3.29 says this, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Now promise makes me think of contract again. Heirs according to a commitment, a commitment that God made. God's covenant is fulfilled in us when we agree to the requirement, the one requirement of the new covenant. Anybody want to take a shot at what that one requirement is in the new covenant? Faith in Jesus Christ alone, right? I know you're a little timid to say that. It's okay. It's the Jesus answer. It's safe. The one requirement of the new covenant, the one and only requirement 
that God says is that you have faith in my son, the one whom I'm sending for the entire world. So let's find out what this actual covenant is. Because if we believe in Jesus Christ, the one requirement, and you've done that this morning, you held up the cup, you held up the bread, you said, amen, I do believe in Jesus Christ as my Savior, then there's a commitment on God's part back to you that he's making a covenant with you. Let's see what the covenant is. Verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. Now, there's a very distinctive characteristic to this. It has an internal effect. Under the old covenant, Everything was on stone tablets. People obeyed out of fear of punishment, that if they disobeyed, that God would punish them. But now we see a translation here that says, now God's writing His laws, where? On our hearts. No longer on tablets of stone, but literally internally. What's the difference, church? The difference is the Holy Spirit, the one who is the changer of the hearts, who arrives in the New Testament, who wasn't yet given in the Old Testament. So the Holy Spirit arrives and He brings a different, a very personal difference because His Spirit is literally within us. No longer external, now internal. So Jesus said in John 14, 26, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in My name, He will teach you all things. He's internal. That's why I pray the way that I do before I teach that God's Spirit would be our teacher and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. So here comes the apex of the covenant. Last two verses. This apex of God's commitment to you. Verse 12. I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Can I get an amen? Amen. See, that's God's commitment to you. And so in verse 13, and speaking of a new covenant, He makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. That's what Mark Kring needs more than anything else. This commitment by my God who cannot lie, who's made a covenant with me, which a system of works could never have accomplished. This commitment that He's going to forget my sins and remember them no more. If you belong to Jesus Christ and you've covenanted with God, you've made the agreement that I believe in Jesus, He is my Savior, God makes a commitment back to you. Your shame is removed. What does it mean for God to forget your sins? I hear people ask that question. I just want to send you out with this thought. What does it mean for God to forget my sins and remember them no more? Can an all-knowing God who's omniscient actually forget anything? If He forgets things, He ceases to be God. So what's really being stated here? The phrase, remember them no more, means hold against us no more. He does not hold our sins against us. Meaning that once they've been dealt with, our past, our present, and our future, once they've been dealt with through Jesus Christ, He deals with us on the base of grace and mercy, and once it's forgiven, forgiven, it's never to be brought up again. No matter no matter how deep your darkest, most intimate secret sin is this morning, something that you think you've never told anybody else and no one else knows, 
if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, he says, even that one, even that one, I will not hold against you. I remember them no more. How is this possible? Go out the door with this thought. Because of this, because of what we celebrate through communion, what it represents on the cross, my blood and my body poured out for you. I enter into a covenant with you that because my blood is poured out, your sins will be remembered no more. How amazing is the grace that God gives to us, church. Powerful image the next time you take communion. Blood in the covenant. Jesus on the cross. I remember your sins no more. Because God treated Jesus on the cross as though Jesus had committed all my sins. As though He had done every wrong thing that I've ever done. And every wrong thing that you've ever done. That's how He treated Jesus. For me. Let me close just by reading verse 12. I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Let's pray. Father, we bow before You because we recognize in humility Your majesty and Your supreme authority, but also in humbleness for what You did for us. We come before You as Your people with grateful hearts and we just ask that You would translate that which we've learned this morning, that which we've discovered about You. Use that, Father, in our lives that we would extend forgiveness in the same way to people that we know who have offended us. Father, that we would speak boldly about this forgiveness that You extend to others. That we would talk confidently of our God. And how majestic and mighty is the name of Jesus, in whose name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen.